General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, a podcast covering Blood Red Skies, a game of World War II aerial combat. Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. This evening, we're talking to Andy Chambers, who I'm sure for most of you needs no introduction, but because it's a podcast, you'll get an introduction. So Andy started off with Games Workshop, making games that were near and dear to my heart, ruining my life with things such as Epic, working on second edition and further editions of Warhammer 40k, and a lot of the other projects that went on throughout those years at Games Workshop. There's also a lot of other games he's impacted uh, in his post-Games Workshop career, Specifically, what we're going to talk about tonight, of course, is Blood Red Skies. Andy, thanks for joining us tonight. We're really happy to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks for bringing me along, guys. A a very good evening to you from the UK. I imagine it's about afternoon where you are. Absolutely. Hey, Andy, thanks for joining us. This is Brett. Yeah, Andy, this is Chris. Really appreciate you coming on the show, man. Well, good. Now that we've got the intros over and started, I do want to really set the tone for this evening by saying... Welcome to my lair, Mr. Chambers. We've really been waiting to talk to you a lot. And so uh, while we jokingly called our interview with John Russell interrogation, uh, hopefully this will be a little bit more of a back and forth and and, uh, we'll be able to tell the listeners uh, some of what's coming up and to kind of give them a peek behind the curtain. Because the first topic we really wanted to discuss was how did you end up designing Blood Red Skies? Because obviously uh, the games that I'd played previously of yours working with uh, the Warhammer 40k world, the Epic scale and the 28 mil scale. How did you end up doing Blood Red Skies? Okay, you need to strap in for this one because (laughs) we have time. (laughs) Okay. Um, Just before I finished the Games Workshop uh, and a lot more thereafter, uh, I started playing an online game called World War II Online um, which it depicts like the Battle of France and the Low Countries. And this is like an MMO uh, simulator. So you've got tanks, you've got infantry, you can run around with a rifle or a machine gun or what have you. Um, but most of all, it had aircraft. And it was actually developed by guys who originally did a, like an online um, fighter combat aircraft game. I think it was called Warbirds or something like that. Right. So, I, I think I remember that one from, uh, that would have been early 2000s, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so the, it was very simulatory. And I got into this game, running around on the ground, shooting my rifle and so forth, and getting the crap strafed out of me and bombed. And it started to give me a picture of air power I'd never really had before, of like being on the ground helpless as this great whirling mass of planes went overhead and just murdered anything that moved. And I was like, ah, I better learn how to fly because apparently we need some help up there. (laughs) Because I used to play on the German side for my sins because, you know, I play evil usually. and they were just outnumbered in the air, it seemed, constantly. So I was like, all right, I'm going to learn how to fly. How hard can it be? Ooh, very hard, as it turns out, because it was a simulator. So much crashing ensued. Um, and well, come on, I, I thought get... pilot things were simple, right? Right, Chris? <laughs> you guys you guys always told me I had the easy job. <laughs> I don't know about other games. No, actually, I think in most ones that I've played, it's quite simulator. It's 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 hard getting into the air, and it's harder to stay there, especially when people are shooting at you. <laughs> exactly. Um, so when, once I've got past the initial, how do I fly a plane stuff, and not black out as soon as I try and roll or sort of like that, combat started to come to the fore, and that involved actually having to get into how real planes fight in the air. 
because it was a simulation once again. So things like energy retention were important and turn rates and engine power and all the rest of those things which are actual bread and butter. So I started reading up on what they call the Bible of fighter combat, which is called Fighter Combat Tactics and Maneuvering by Robert L. Shaw. Uh, which is what the Top Gun school produced out of basically what they learned in the Second World War and starting off with jets and stuff like that. Uh, and that gets into really technical sides of air fighting. I was like, oh, interesting. This is like way more you know, evolved than I ever thought it was. Fascinating subject. Don't ruin Chris's view of what we did as aviators. Chris thinks that all I did for an entire 20-year career was drink beer and act like a 12-year-old while wearing pajamas, also known as a flight Well, suit. make sure Andy knows that that was because I watched you drink beer and hang around in pajamas. <laughs> okay, so maybe I didn't set the best example. There is a background for this. <laughs> From everything that I've read about pilots, especially in wartime, these things are not mutually exclusive at all, <laughs> in point of fact. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so yeah i came to understand that air combat was this whole thing completely different like as different as you know tanks to submarines uh in terms of like all the other kinds of combat i was had and it made me think at the time of like huh every tabletop game i've ever played about air combat has been like kind of not like what the experience of it is that i'm getting up here stow that thought move forward about five years uh, when I moved up to Seattle, uh, I got together with a, a friend of mine and a games designer friend of mine called Ryan Miller. And we just had a designery lunch one morning. And he posed a question that nobody had ever asked me before of like, you know, if you could design any game you wanted to, what game would you design? And I was like, oh, well, I've kind of been thinking in the intervening five years about how to do a fighter combat game to reference the kind of like the larger scale fighter combats rather than the everything that I'd ever played had always been um, pre-plot your movement. You know, you can handle right. one or two planes right. at a time. If you really know the system, you might be able to manage three sort of thing. And that was universal. I mean, I think of it as the Blue Max system, because that's the earliest example of it I ran across. Very World War One. Right. And that just was not the experience at all I'd had when flying a plane. <laughs> it was like, it was real seat of the pants stuff and very instinctual and, and very fast as well. I mean, we all talked about World War II planes, you know, Spitfires and Messerschmitts, so up over 300 miles an hour. Um, so I thought, actually, I have an idea of how to actually turn this into a game, a tabletop game, because I've done a lot of tabletop games. I've thought about a lot of different systems. And what I'd read had been, it often revolved around this concept, this idea of advantage. Right. When pilots talk about engaging enemy aircraft, they talk about having the advantage and having them at a disadvantage or being at a disadvantage and so on. I was like, well, actually many years earlier from doing Battlefleet Gothic, when I was at Games Workshop, I'd started thinking about how to try and do 3D uh, movement in a way, because again, the only t only ways examples I'd seen of 3D movement were like, you know, car aerials and stuff like that, where you, you had a number of increments that you went up or a teetering stack of counters and stuff, nothing very satisfying about them. And I came up with the idea that really you only care about three levels of movement, if they're above you, if they're below you, or if they're on the same level as you. And right. that actually worked for air combat perfectly. You, really you mean you didn't want to go down the, the way of uh, check your six with 10 different levels, I believe, is what they ended up with? <laughs> which I, and, and I say that because I love some parts of that game system, but oh my gosh, a different table for every level? I, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> no, no. And, and this is it. Every, every time I'd seen an air combat game attempted, they tend to get really kind of mired in the technicalities of it. 
Absolutely. I, I want to take a step back. I want to be able to handle a dozen planes at a time and it not be a problem. Because again, when I was reading, I really there was a second hand bookshop just down the road from us where we moved to in Seattle and I used to go down there and they had all these like fifties, sixties books, um, a lot of which were about air combat. So, you know, I was reading uh Aces biographies and stuff like that. And their experiences again were weren't sort of like ha ha one on one, you know, Rick Tofton style. It's like, and then the 30 Fock Wolf 190s came down on top of us and stuff like that. And everything just went to pieces. And I lost my wingman and we just flew like crazy and eventually found a cloud and got away. Exactly. That sort of stuff. A time and again, that was the story that I was reading. And again, it didn't match up to what I was, I was seeing as, as any sort of a game, actually, on tabletop. And I wanted to try and recreate that. So I had a good core idea. And I, t- I talked about all this to Ryan. He was like, oh, that sounds really good. So we went away and we designed a little game. We did uh, Mustangs versus Zeros. Uh, and it really worked well. And like I say, I've done a lot of games over the years now. I've been designing games professionally for nearly 30 years at this point. I hadn't been back then, but at this point I am. So to come up with something that's like, oh, that's quite a novel system. And, you know, it really sticks well. There- there's something very intuitive about it. So it, I started taking it to shows when people invited me over to the shows in the States. And again, I play it with people and they always seem to pick up on it really, really fast. And I was like, huh, this is a game that's worth pursuing. And again, nobody asked me to write it or anything. So I just wrote it for my own entertainment. And that is how I came to write Blood Red Skies. I mean, getting it published <laughs> is a whole other story. But that is oh, how I'm sure. I yeah. it in the first place was to try and every time I try and do a game, you, you try and get a bit of truthiness in it, you know, trying to right. illustrate something about the scale or the kind of fighting that you're showing. And I'd never seen it done well, in my opinion, for like a lot of aircraft at once. And that was the goal. And it seemed to hit it really well. So I kind of hung on to it and carried on developing it over the years. Absolutely. Well, I know from my experience, and I think uh, you know, Chris and Brett would probably agree, is there's, as we said, a little bit of a cinematic feel to it. So it's it's simple, but it still feels like you're, simulating air combat without the pain of energy charts and energy management and <laughs> altitude management. Um, but it, but it has that flexibility, you know? Oh, it does. I mean, it's the little things like having elements that are up in high cover and you just don't know when they're going to drop down out of the sky and bounce you or, or having that cloud out there on the table that you put out at the beginning of the game that you can run away from a combat into when you do something stupid. So that's what I really enjoy about it. Cause it does give it that, that cinematic feel without, bogging you down like everybody's saying in charts and trying to just i hate games that have tons of bookkeeping and that's one of the reasons why i really enjoy blood red skies because there's just not a ton of bookkeeping yeah that that was very much one of the goals as well try and you know i i again bookkeeping doesn't really give you an exciting dynamic game it gives you a bookkeepery sort of a game so i really tried hard to avoid that element of it and that was part of the appeal it's like oh i can do this without bookkeeping even wow yeah, so uh, you know, I know that we talked about the compromise of of going to being advantage, neutral, disadvantage, kind of simulating both some positional characteristics as well as energy, as well as your altitude, uh, and that's obviously going to play differently in uh, in some of the later expansions. We'll talk a little bit later. But what were some of the other comprom- compromises? What did you think that uh, was going to be pretty easy to simulate, and then suddenly you said, "I really need to simplify this because there's too many options, too many choices." To me, things for people to do. I don't know because I was building from very simple core rules, and again, I've been around the block a few times. 
one of the things I tried yes, to yes, do you have. You've ruined my life with many rule sets. <laughs> in case you don't, if, in case you think I'm not bitter, I am. <laughs> All those many hours you've already lost. Exactly. Too. Yes. Uh, well, in the process, I have learned that you know a complicated game doesn't make for a better game as a rule of thumb. So I kind of went into it with a, a, a strong attitude that I wanted the pilots to always be at least as important, but probably more important than the planes. Right. And that was one of the things I did quite early on. And you mentioned things like armament. I squished the armament very consciously down and the agility level. So it's only kind of like one, two, or three uh, for both categories. And that's the entire World War II's worth of planes going from everything from, you know, guys with a single rifle caliber machine gun on the front up to oh hello i've got quad 30 millimeters the other <laughs> right. end of it that was quite a big big range and it was it's very consciously been squished down because i didn't want it to overwhelm the pilot skill which i knew i wanted to have from one to five two to five as it works out um so both of those core characteristics, agility and firepower, I really wanted to keep them down very low. And that means you have to make a lot of compromises when you're looking at armament, for example, and go, well, well you know, it's a mix of 20 millimeter cannon and uh, some rifle machine guns, but we're going to call it equivalent to this load of rifle machine guns over here because they haven't got jammo for the cannons and things like that. Well, and so, I think but, that's the the tough thing that some uh, some players moving into this game uh, may or may not appreciate is when you compress that all down in an effort to make the game so playable there's gonna be aircraft that sound very similar when you look at their card and you realize obviously that's where the you know aircraft specific abilities come in but even if you took say a, a italian c202 machi and put it next to a bf109 you know erf all of a sudden you go well, firepower, maybe that's the only difference. Some speed in there, you know. You, you start realizing that to make it playable, you you can't have this really highly granular level of detail where you're perfectly simulating that aircraft as it would turn. Yeah, so I, I, my answer to that is you, you build a game where that's not the important thing. Right. If you see what I mean. Um, I, one of the things that's actually pleasantly surprised me is how diverse the aircraft have come out despite having quite a... A compressed stat line because between that and the speed and the traits are really what makes them as well it's like there are some that just t tend to end up sort of like oh check it out it's another tight turning sort of like firepower one agility three aircraft but to a certain extent that's, you can expect that because that's what people were designing to particularly at the start of the war uh, and the diversity starts to come in later as they uh, build up on firepower increase speed and often lose agility along the way because they decide that speed and firepower is actually way more important than being right. able to turn like a bastard all the time. Well, I think the, the Spitfire is probably one of the best examples of that. If you look at both the Spitfire and the BF-109, just through various iterations, there was that conscious decision of, all right, we're going to lose a little bit of speed. We're going to put these external blisters with bigger guns in them. <laughs> and we're going to try to make ourselves have bigger teeth. And then they would go... And a guy with a couple 12.7s just kicked us around the sky. So now we're going to change that. We're going to figure out how to change the wings. So I think uh, I think there's an element of that in the game that that is is kind of fun as you start matching different, I don't want to say different eras, but different levels of technology. So you say, show me exactly what happened when a BF-109G showed up against a Mark II Spitfire. And you go, ooh, that suddenly becomes a different game. But, yeah, it's quite a but, different ball game. Yeah, but some of the flavor still has to be the the person playing it and the way they play their aces or they play their air force or their air arm um, because it's it's kind of the comment i've always made 
in the 40k world to people is that you could put you know two very shooty armies down next to each other and they might play very differently on the table because of the personalities of the players and it's it's you know in in that game it's the fluff that kind of drives it and this is the historical background and are you flying a, a Messerschmitt where you need to leave the battle quickly and get home because you're out over someone else's territory? Or are you fighting over England as the as the uh, Spitfire and you can stick around a while? <laughs> yes, indeedy. So one of the things we've always talked about with some of the compromises, and and of course it's kind of my pet rock, but I think it's, it really bears discussing, is a conscious decision to keep the game short and playable. And and the boom chip mechanic that people can argue about and can make home rules for and things. But I think it's it's something that I really want to tee up was is how difficult was it to to tweak the game to be quickly playable? Did you find yourself having to say, all right, what's a what's a reasonable amount of time for 16 aircraft on the table or or did it just kind of flow that way? One of the things that we, we locked in on fairly early, was Ryan's, the idea of you dice pools um where only sixes counted as successes yeah right so for your basic plane you're looking at your pilot skill as a number plus either firepower or agility as a number and that's how many dice you roll and if you get any sixes on it that's a success and you've passed the test as it were whether it's to shoot or to dodge or whatever so we'd, we'd started playing around with that and it became quite apparent although it was really cool that you could just keep whiffing shooting somebody forever for <laughs> yes yes i have or, experienced that <laughs> the other end of the scale they could just keep dodging forever particularly when you start getting very, very agile planes the agility right. three running around right. place it's like well they, they just keep dodging it's like so you got that and it can i think it can affect any kind of like air combat game because everybody's moving around so fast and so maneuverable is that it can go without a decision for quite some time right uh, if you're looking for people to get shot down specifically but it felt like, and again, when I read um, you know, historical records uh, about air combat and so forth, fighters really had a very, very short duration that they could stay in combat for. You know, they, they burn fuel really fast, as you say, you've got 10 minutes before you have to leave for home. Uh, they burn through ammunition really fast. Numerous accounts of people just running out of ammunition while they're in combat. And what are you going to do now? Uh, go home. Hope you can go home. Um, let alone actually getting hit or pilots getting injured or pilots just getting tired out by you know throwing lots of high G maneuvers around the place. So there was this idea that you should be on a bit of a timer. And we hit on the idea of, well, if you manage to score a hit, give them a boom chip. That means it, it always something sticks, yeah? You always get a reward right. for shooting somebody. And that was an important thing to promote as well because you need to promote some aggression. You know, why, why should I risk myself by shooting at you with an advantage-based <laughs> system when I can just, like, hang around at advantage forever and exactly. make a mistake? It's like, no, we want to have some people who can push the action just by, you know, getting in there and trying to shoot people up. So between those two things, and that that's something that really worked out to give us the, that boom shit system of putting a, a timer on how long you can hang around in combat for um, without it, it going to a decision one way or another. Right. And I, and I think that sometimes, you know, we're victims of our experience. So we, if we haven't, if we don't have a lot of air sense or haven't been up in, in a small airplane a lot or haven't pulled G's or, um, I, I, you know, some of those things, it's that people have a hard time thinking about, well, this fight's only probably gone on for two or three minutes. And why are my pilots who are not getting shot down, getting, leaving the fight? Well, because they probably expended all their ammo and they're beat up now and it's time to make that smart decision to go home. Uh, so there's there's a lot to that. Plus, the, I think 
sometimes we, uh, we when we've used the term hit in there before the boom chit, I think it you sometimes people don't always grasp that even if you were in a weapons employment opportunity on on another fighter and you put bullets out there, that's a psychological impact to that individual. And yeah. that you, they may not have been hit, but they may suddenly go, I don't really want to stick around this fight anymore because this guy's eating my lunch. <laughs> I need to disengage. Yeah. I need to get out of here. So I think it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, which, which is the other thing that you, you kind of, you don't see in the, the kind of like, you know, uh, Blue Max style combat is they don't try and pull some clever maneuver to come around and, and shoot you from behind and stuff like that. They run. Yeah. As a <laughs> they run like Billio because if you try and pull something clever, all you're going to do is get slow, you're going to run out of energy and just be a victim for either the guy that's chasing you now or the guy that's behind him follow, you know, covering his tail. Right. Well, and that's been always always one of the things I've tried as I've been drafting a few scenarios, uh, looking at some of the MIG Alley stuff, is trying to balance the how do I force the player, do I want to force the player to leave the board uh, as a victory condition or do I want him to fly along until he has accumulated all of the boom chits that would cause him to leave, which is what he did at the engagement anyway. So it's, yeah. it's one of those interesting kind of, kind of decisions is, is how do you reward them for surviving to the end uh, of, of when they did, but the aircraft still disengaged. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's, there's always some interesting parts there. Yeah. There's been a few scenarios we've been playing around with recently where we've had, uh, you know, entry points and escape points and stuff like that. So that once you've done your business, particularly when you're, you know, in a kind of ground attack capacity or something like that, you can just leave. Yeah, you don't have to right. hang around and hope the fighters shoot you down or anything. Well, and I was experimenting with one, and I know uh, Brett and Chris were laughing at me trying to figure out how to properly simulate uh, Captain Fulmar's shoot down of a of a MiG fifteen from an F four U Corsair. And the fact is, he did luckily shoot one down, but he also got shot down, and his wingman got away. So we know the proper end of the battle is they need to leave the board <laughs> do they leave it willingly or do you do you reward them for only one of them getting shot down by the time they run out of they've got too many boom chits you know it's a, <laughs> it's a it's an interesting question because if you do it historically they're not going to win a 8v2 engagement of eight migs and and uh two corsairs <laughs> at best they're going to get off the board and survive so yeah, absolutely with a, with a lot of lucky dice rolls and yeah lucky <laughs> well, dice rolls I, on the part of the opposition i, I think the first time i played it i i I played with some very straight canned rules out of scenarios two and three, and it was hilarious because uh, both of them got driven down into. They started advantage, got driven to disadvantage by tailing Migs within the first you know turn, and I think were shot down by the second turn. So that was a quick game. Scrubbed that in about fifteen minutes. And all right, let me redraft the scenario start rules, and, <laughs> and we'll try to give them at least a, a fair chance at, at turning with a Mig. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so talking about that, and and knowing that there's there's some release plans, you know, coming along, and and things are coming out. I know everybody wants to hear about Mig Alley and wants to hear about your perspective on Mig Alley because we've been uh, play testing it a little bit. And thank you guys for for sending us some of the advanced information. Uh, it's it's always fun to get out there and experiment with something and try to help the community be ready for a release, and so they're not totally surprised by what shows up in their uh, mailbox uh, here in a couple of days. Um, but for you, uh, designing Migali, how much of a departure was it from kind of the, the world you'd built in Blood Red Skies and what you thought you knew about air combat? Um, not not too wild. Not too wild overall. It was a bit of a departure, I must confess, because everything just, like, it ramps up so fast when you get to the Korean War um, with the second-generation jets in particular. But, like I say, good old fighter combat was 
split up into sections which were about guns combat and uh, basically missile combat of various things because they knew they were two different things. And when you're talking Korean War, you're still talking guns combat at right. the end of the day. So that means pretty much everything still applies. What you've got is just some horrendous statted monstrosities running around in the in the terms of the the MiGs and the Sabres <laughs> in comparison to what had gone before of like they go yeah. how fast and all that sort of thing Although the to ability fair, to dive halfway across the board is just hilarious to me I, I, I had to it took me a couple games to get that into my brain to realize that if someone wanted to burn advantage on a 4 by 4 board he was in the middle of the board at the end of his first yeah. move <laughs> yes. they, they can come and say hello whatever they yeah. feel and I just had to realize there's a strategy to punishing people for doing that. So they generally yeah. would only do that for one game, and they'd realize that's not how I want to enter a fight. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I think we did, we did end up taking the great dive off them in the end because it was just too problematic on the, oh, yeah. the usual sort of like table sizes that we were playing on. Uh, not exactly. like they're not plenty fast enough already. So, you know, massive speed aside, the rest of it comes down to firepower and agility, and, you know, it all locks in with the, the existing rules. Uh, we put together a few special traits to represent the planes themselves, uh, particularly the MiGs. As I, as I had it explained to me, they were these marvelous engines of destruction, apart from the fact they didn't take much account for the pilot. So you know, they, they <laughs> exactly. were often like, you know, knocked unconscious by G-forces when they dived and stuff like that. So uh, Well, and that's the funny part, reading some of the history, and I didn't realize what absolutely terrible airframes, the both the MiG-15 and the MiG-9, uh, one of its twin-engine predecessors, were in, uh, in the pilot uh, comfort and usability. I mean, I knew that the Soviet cockpits were Spartan, but when I read the accounts of how many of the MiG-9s crashed in testing because, you know, no pressurization or cockpit failures, ejection seat failures, all these things. You realized it was really big engines with some really big guns strapped on them, and they might have accounted for a pilot to fly the thing. Yeah, I mean, really big guns. I mean, 23-millimeter cannon big guns. Yeah, on yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, monstrous, because they were intended to shoot down you know, bombers, multi-engine bombers originally. Oh, I'm, so, I'm glad um, you brought that up and you you slipped and said the b word. Uh, so, so yeah. So we're gonna we've talked a lot about what are the follow on release plans. Uh, almost everybody who's anchored down on Mig Alley has been really happy about the fighter versus fighter. Um, maybe it's because I like beating up on weaker opponents. But is there a plan for some of the bombers to roll in there with uh, with stat lines? Uh, we're working on it for the World War II end of things, and we have stats out there for quite a lot of multi-engine right, stuff for right. World War II. Uh, going over into MIG Alley, I don't know. A lot of that depends on our resin-based future uh, okay. of the Red Skies, which uh, I think I think the MIG Alley stuff should be the first stuff that we're doing in the new resin. Perfect. So, that will be that will be good to see. Because well, I know we'll people are asking. You'll, you'll know before me. But yeah, people <laughs> do continuously bring up B-29s, of course. Um, Roger, who's my Korean War expert, is obsessed with the, oh, what's the gigantic one? Is it the B-36? B-36 would be uh, an interesting one to have a what's-if kind of uh, kind of experience <laughs> putting that on there. But I think that would be a $30 chunk of resin by the time you put it on uh, the Yeah, table. absolutely. It'll have to get in line behind it. I mean, B-29s, I can kind of, yep, cool, B-29s, that, that's fine. They're in the Second World War as well. So right, exactly. You've got them, use so. for that, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, what is it, six-turning? Two burning or something like that, whatever the massive 
yeah. monstrosities that B36s are. I, I think that might be a, a, a marvelous opportunity for home printing with a 3D printer. Yeah, <laughs> I think that belongs. See, Chris, there you go. Start, uh, start. Absolutely, the resin printer is on the list because I just can't do that with the uh, with the PLA printer. But the resin <laughs> resin printer is in my future. <laughs> I'm glad you've decided to go down that road. That's one more hobby I don't. Know. <laughs> I have a problem collecting and painting as it is, much less printing anything. Hey, it was just getting too expensive to buy scenery for, for 30K <laughs> when I can print it myself for pennies on the dollar. Exactly. Oh, I know, I know the feeling. And uh, between that and uh, trying to figure out, you know, for all the add-on pieces when you're like, ooh, I could make a custom helmet. I could make a custom shoulder pad. Yeah, I, I would be uh, sitting at my 3D uh, design and printing all day if I went down that road. So that's why I've got you. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and Andy, we're we are thrilled. I mean, I, I, I'm an old gamer. I've been around a long time, painting a long time, Forge World heavy kind of guy. So I've, I've been in resin is something I've been doing for a long time. And when I heard you guys were switching over to resin, I mean, it was like jumping for joy. I was so happy to hear it because I, me, I personally can't stand pewter lead miniatures anymore. I just don't like working with them they're so frustrating it's hard to get good lines on them and and i was just thrilled when i heard you they guys just remind him of his unhappy childhood playing dungeons and dragons they do <laughs> they do painting 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 lead miniatures with testers faint yes <laughs> you should have joined those of us that were playing rogue trader which was perfectly wonderful until somebody named andy ruined the whole system now <laughs> no i just had to pick on you andy because I, I am an old rogue trader uh era guy and it's uh it's funny to, to sit back now all these years later and see consistencies with with game designers and go oh now now i understand some of their pet rocks and the things they bring to games and it it cracked me up that not once but twice you got me into what i'll call card-based games because epic under your tutelage uh, became very much a hey here's your armies by the cards you have and you pick and you choose um and and i loved it and so i guess i should say that was awesome but i also hate for the fact that you introduced the uh the imperial knight uh fluff in plastic uh, back in those days which now has caused me to have a closet full of plastic knights that aren't all built <laughs> so i blame you <laughs> but anyway so Talking about revisions and and kind of going forward, uh, can we expect some some changes? We've seen some FAQs come out for the rules, uh, so we know there's some point value changes, some clarifications. Uh, is there going to be a change when Airstrike comes out? Are we going to kind of reset the the rules a little bit, or what's the plan? Uh, Airstrike, Airstrike is a, what I'm calling it is a rules compendium, and that it, it covers all of the 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 rules that are in the starter set currently in three different little leaflets very written up in airstrike as well written up a little bit longer i've tried to incorporate like answers off the faqs and errata into that but uh, it's called they don't change the rules they just try to explain them better uh, okay good uh, i'm trying to kind of keep the game reasonably stable at the moment i don't want to change anything too wildly just yet uh, looking to the future, we're looking at doing a new starter set for Midway next year. Oh, excellent. I guess I better start reading <laughs> my Pacific stuff again. <laughs> yes, hit that Pacific harder. because we, we Damn it, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> You're my hapless puppet. Exactly. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> you just need an auto cart, Doug, for the Warlord game site. <laughs> it pops up new release, it just goes in your cart. <laughs> So, Andy, if you've, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to any of our, our 
episodes where we talk about how we ended up with the forces that we did. It was uh, it was a horrible spending spree on my part where I kept going, well, if I'm already playing the RAF, you know, why not play, you know, the Army Air Forces? <laughs> and, and why not? I've got to have a Navy and Marine Corps squadron because being a you know retired Marine. Hey, hey, <laughs> now, th- th- this, this is one of the things that I think is a strength of Blood Red Skies is it actually listen to this folks out there very very cheap to get set up and you know collect a small force or it is multiple small forces because a couple of boxes and you're away really one box and you're away absolutely and i think some people miss that that they, they keep thinking you have to acquire every model in the range and, and my attitude was i'm going to pick and choose a couple models and i'm going to try these different uh different aircraft and and see how i like it and if i want to acquire some more sure um but for me like right now with uh with the U.S. Uh, Army uh, Air Corps kind of forces, I've only got the P-51 box, and that's all I'm planning on doing. I haven't gone out to buy third-party models for anything in the expansion set because yeah. the expansion card was awesome. It's great, but I'm like, you know what? I, I like how the P-51s play. That's kind of what I want to play for those guys, and I'm going to concentrate on on RAF and, and then Navy and Marine Corps. Yeah, yeah, and yeah I know absolutely. for me personally, just being a Russian player, it's been, a, I mean, it's really neat to be able to go out and get a box of miniatures. I mean, Yak ones, I've been able to find them online for about 25 bucks. Um, and for 25 bucks, you can paint six planes in one paint scheme. And then, okay, so here's another paint scheme from a different guard unit I want to paint. And okay, so it's 26 more bucks. It's just, it's so much cheaper than a lot of the other games I play. And that's, that is one of the things I really enjoy about it because I can, I don't have to spend a lot of money. It's not like investing in a 30K army or something like that, where it's, you're talking about a $1,500 layout to build a, a good playable force. This is, this is just cheap as chips, I guess, is the British term. That, that's exactly the, the phrase we use. For, <laughs> yep. yeah. yeah, well, at the end of the day, you know, air combat, delicious as it is, and it is very sexy, is a niche subject. And we can't expect people to go like, oh, I'm going to drop all of my 30K, 40K armies and now do nothing but buy planes and model air combat and all the rest of it. I'm, I'm so pretty sure that's what Brett has done. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Uh, yeah, a, a large selection of bombers on hand, no doubt, then, Brett, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, we went over to Brett's off. house to, for the three of us to play, and Brett had German propaganda Luftwaffe video songs playing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we were getting a little concerned. <laughs> he might have a problem acquiring the Air Force. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Andy, go ahead. So... Uh, yeah, the the idea that it was like it was just like a little nice little add-on game that you could collect a little bit for and just play on the side if you wanted a quick game of uh, airplanes was a very appealing one. And another thing that motivated me to sort of like develop it as being a simple to learn game uh, that had quite a short turnaround with the boom chit system and so forth, so games wouldn't drag on all night and stuff like that. So it's it's kind of like a real aperitif of a game. Right, that you might right. play down the club before doing something else or after doing something else. That was very much in the back of my mind of not to make it this this. I've done plenty of very very grandiose, you know, grand battle type games and stuff like that, but to to do something that was kind of skirmishy in the air, but wasn't just that pre-plotted one-on-one kind of uh, air combat was one of my real goals for it. Well, and I think that's the the good part of the game is if you play it one-on-one. It's actually kind of boring. It it's very quick and and nothing really cinematic seems to happen. Uh, but as you get into the larger parts of the game, you you really get that feeling for the importance of the wingman, the the tough tactical decisions. When all right, now I've been kind of bracketed in two different directions by by this enemy foreship. Which way do I go? Who do I engage? And and so while it's 
very straightforward as as Chris and I say, a beer and pretzels game in that sense. There's a lot of tactical decisions you've got to make in there that that aren't just I will charge the closest enemy and get into close combat with them. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It, it it can be quite clever. You you're, certainly you can play clever and you can play not clever and all the rest of it. And generally you'll get rewarded for playing clever and generally get punished for being not clever about things. <laughs> exactly. Which is you're always the sweet spot we aim for in games overall. Yeah, and I think it will be interesting to see with MIG Alley. I know there are some dedicated Blood Red Skies players that have already put their hands on MIG Alley, but haven't been able to wrap their their mind around how brutally fast some of those jet engagements can be if you're playing a, a very small 2v2 or maybe even a 4v4. And uh, that people were saying, I, I don't understand it. Is it broken? Is Are we playing this right? And uh, I know Mitch over at the No Dice, No Glory podcast, he and I were laughing like, Nope, that's the way it's supposed to be, and that's how it was in Korea. There were two quick <laughs> slashing passes. Guys either decided they were going to leave, <laughs> better part of Valor is going home, uh, or they stuck around and they got shot down pretty quick if they planted the flag. So it uh, it kind of yeah. was uh, was interesting. If you want a longer game, just play with more planes. It's it's a very simple equation, and that's and that's true because I I found the you know when I was working up to do the just larger World War II games, uh, Brett and I were playing some down there. It it kept the speed and and it was also not too difficult to add other players in. So I know a lot of times you'll have these grand ideas of, oh, we're going to play a, you know, six player 40K game, three per side. And then all of a sudden you start getting bogged down in who's shooting who and who wants to do stuff simultaneously. Uh, and it doesn't work that way in Blood Risk, guys. It's very easy. Everyone knows based on pilot skill and advantage level when they're going. Um, and other than people not keeping track of what's going on and drinking beer instead of playing the game, uh, <laughs> it, it generally moves very quick. That, that's why we have Zoom chits in the game, so you can mark yeah. who's gone, because that, that's <laughs> absolute key to keeping it together. Oh, we screwed yeah. that one up all the time. We, I, <laughs> I, I think uh, there was more than once that Brett and I looked at each other and were like, wait, what are, what, what are we on again? Who's moving? <laughs> Less beer, more Zoom chits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, just trying to like really drum it into your head to put those Zoom chits down. Yeah, exactly. Key to keeping track of what the hell's going on, because, because advantage levels can change. Uh, over the course of a oh, time, absolutely. you can get in a real mess if you're not, care- not careful to track who's actually gone right. already. But you're quite right. This is, again, one of the things I found taking it shows when it was in that prototype version was uh, you could handle three or four players, whatever number, really. You just give them a couple of planes and off they go because it's a fairly self-selecting system. You know, only one plane is active at a time. Right, um, right. And you run through them quite quickly, so everybody gets to have a good time. So yeah, it, it's one of the, the again one of the appealing things. One of the reasons I like it is because it does scale very very well. You can play with more players or more planes, and it doesn't become a particularly more complicated game to play. You know, the tactics become a little bit more involved. Of course they do, but you know you don't need to be uh, any more knowledgeable, particularly about the game in general, to play it with, on larger scales or with more people. Well, Brad, I know you've really honed in on one key part of. Uh, Blood Red Skies piece, and that's the scenario. I know that's kind of your pet rock now because it drives your hobby management, for lack of a better term. Uh, Brett, what were some of your thoughts? Yeah, well, Andy, first let me just say thanks. Um, you're talking to three knuckleheads that didn't really know anything about Blood Red Skies, but have played and hobbied long enough to get together and go to Adepticon where we did a demo game with John and bought into a bunch of... Uh, boxes of different types and i remember we were all in our hotel room like kids at christmas opening stuff and 
you know, now here we are trading our time to do, you know, other hobbying or any number of other things. And uh, we're trading that time to paint little airplanes and read books about, you know, World War II aerial combat. And we're texting each other back and forth. And, and we've gone so far as to, you know, we'll start a podcast and recording and stuff. I think it, we were driving home from Adepticon and talking. I think I said, hey, guys, you know, we should probably just, what if we just did our own podcast on this? And here we are, right? So, I, I you know, there's nothing special about anything we're doing. I, I think if if that's the kind of reaction you can get from three randos that show up and push some little planes around, you know, people are picking this game up and are having a similar level of enthusiasm about it. I, I thank you for that. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, after, after getting into that box set and getting some games in and getting some planes painted, you know, playing those little scenarios that come in the box set was, was kind of the, um, the inspiration, I guess, for like, oh man, you know, this would be great if we had some, some scenarios like this for other things. And, uh, then with Mig Alley coming, I started reading some books about, I think I read a book about B-29 bombers actions in Korea and started imagining scenarios and stuff that come from that. Now, here we are talking about, wow, it'd be awesome if we could just, you know, we could make some mission packs or scenarios. We, we could do all this. We could do this and that. And that's kind of a road we're kind of going down. Do you have any any thoughts about where this game could go in terms of expanded scenarios, maybe, I don't know if it's like a codex or something, but uh, maybe uh, scenarios for different parts of the war for different that pit different factions together where it's an expanded list of missions that guys can play. Because I can tell you that I see that stuff, and I, I think I said it in our interview with John, it sort of activates the chip in my head where I'm like, oh man, I've got to get that collection because I've got to start building those so I can play those scenarios and I can have the guys over and we could play that part of the war. You know, what do you think? Uh, one of the, the other thing that I should say about airstrike as well as being the rules compendium for the starter set. And, uh, I say with the FAQ stuff and it's got the Migali stuff in it as well is it's got a bunch of new scenarios, uh, which include all kinds of things. Um, the airstrike rules embody ground attack rules. So torpedoing, dive bombing, rocketing people things like that <laughs> all the fun uh, things <laughs> all the fun things in life and ground targets as well variety of different ground targets we kind of put stats in for airfields and bunkers and trains and ships and lots of different things there's many different things we could think of basically uh so th there's another level of going on and some of the scenarios utilize those rules so you might be trying to escort some bombers going in to try and bomb a target uh, you might be doing a sneak attack where you're trying to like take them by surprise and get in and get out before the the alarm goes off. It might be literally just a high altitude escort mission where you're kind of trying to keep the bombers alive just to keep them going off the other edge of the table. Lots of different scenarios, and I look at these as kind of like a, a big toolkit uh, for being able to put together your own scenarios for for a, a historical uh, specific scenario. And we put a few examples in in each case as like, well, you could do this with World War 90s versus B-17s or what have you. But always the idea is that they're, they're written as scenarios that are generic enough that you could fit them to whatever forces you want to use and apply them to what you know of the history that you want to play out. Yeah, that's the uh, the good part, at least for me, is a lot of times I've, I've taken the very basic scenarios that we just have in the boxed game and I said, okay... 
this the scenario zero, the recce scenario, and it was kind of funny when you guys uh, sort of re-released it in a sense for the D-Day piece with now a, a recce mosquito. Uh, you know, it's one of those where I keep saying, how many different variants of this do I do I want to go out and play? Because there's now Migali scenarios where it was actually an RB29 or sometimes it was a F80 recce variant that was going out there. And so there's there's times to do this the same scenario, but have different combatants. And, you know, once again, some people want that want to be handed game balance. Uh, I tend to uh, like to operate in the real world and realize that balance isn't always there. <laughs> it often rarely is. So I'm happy to take two MiG-15s trying to run down a, a single uh, recce aircraft and, and see if I can make it off the board uh, because it's going to be difficult. It's not going to be, you're not going to get the same, uh, the same, yeah, I, same victory. I, I, I do believe in scenarios sometimes having a challenge person where, you know, just stay alive is victory. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and like we talked about with the VMA three twelve checkerboard scenario, yeah. Any any scenario involving you know two corsairs and eight MIGs, uh, probably the the only victory scenario is stay alive. Victory condition, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. You, you, you try and build them accordingly. So, a lot of the new new airstrike scenarios are asymmetric. In a way there is a defender and there's an attacker. Um, you know, the defender will likely get flak and stuff like that to help them out. The attacker will get bombers. They're, they're trying to get to go and do the business one way or another, whether it's actually part of the scenario itself or it's just part of the victory conditions. Um, I have put in a couple of extra sort of just straight up fairly mirrored scenarios as well in case um, we need some extra things for competitive play in tournaments and so on where you, you don't want a, an asymmetric scenario for those. So there's a couple more of those. But like I say, the, the main thing is that the airstrike rules themselves give you all the rules necessary for for doing ground attacks and doing that sort of third dimension of like stuff on the ground um as a target as a victory condition or as something just to run away from well chris i know you'd been talking a lot about you know competitive play versus uh fun games or, or how do you balance the two what were some of the thoughts that you had that you'd want to run past andy well i i just wanted to hear what andy's experience was in the uk because to be honest, we haven't seen a whole lot of competitive play over here when it comes to Blood Red Skies. I mean, it's it's a community that's starting to grow in the U.S. I think it's it you know from looking at the message boards, it's something that's much more popular in the U.K. right now, and it's it's kind of spreading. And what that scene looks like in the U.K. and what what we can expect um, as it grows here. Um, we've we've had a few tournaments go off here. There's a general feeling that. Basically, you just ask people to turn up with like 500 points worth of planes, which will get you about five or six planes, depending on uh, how skilled pilots you want for them, what planes they are, and stuff like that. And you fight out three scenarios. Uh, a lot of them have actually used the bomber escort scenario, which I think is quite a bold move because it is a very asymmetric scenario. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> no, we, we keep talking about playing it, and we we haven't just because of that. I think uh, you should try we... it sometimes because <laughs> it's one of those things on paper it looks. Does. sometimes you know in reality it's horrendous as well but I, often it's a lot i've watched a, yeah i've watched a couple of youtube streams of guys playing that scenario and i'm like nope <laughs> nope looks like a great way to lose <laughs> yeah. i will uh, i'll get better at the game before I play that scenario that'll be the last one that we do but the, the usual case is if, the, if you use that one you you both play as the the attackers you know and then flip side right. and you know, play the other side um and it seems to hold up pretty well overall on that it's well, it's going to be fairly short games, so you can get them done over the course of like you know an afternoon at a show or something. 
that. And there isn't a massive competitive scene here in comparison to the States, over, but it is a useful tool for a bunch of people just to get together uh, and have some games in Blood Red Skies uh, to a common rule set and, you know, uh, a, a reasonably, reasonably balanced force construction because we do have points values. I don't have an awful lot of faith in them, but I say that backed up by, once again, all those years of games design and I don't think they're that far off either. Balance. It's always something that's uh, a bit subjective, a bit objective. But right. We, we do have them, so you can play competitively with the, the points values that are there. And I, I wait in, with bated breath for people to tell me the unbreakable combination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I always laugh when those come up in the Facebook group. And I, th I think there's a few that I've seen. I've gone, okay, I, if somebody showed up with that combination and wanted to play me on the table, I would look and go, that's just not a game I want to do anyway. But, yeah, but I have, I have that in 40K. I, a good friend of mine. <laughs> Uh, who was my primary player here in South Carolina until he thankfully deserted me so I don't have to get killed by the Tau every time. Uh, but <laughs> he would bring an army that was just no fun. And I looked at him and said, mm. I will I will counter that and I will bring my no fun Imperial Knight army. And after <laughs> I beat him around the table with an army of four knights, he stopped bringing his six Riptide army. You know, so yeah. it was it was yeah. one of those, you know, uh, we, could, we could either sit down and have fun or we can bring an unbeatable combo and, and there probably will be one of those somewhere especially as we introduce jets but if you're playing jets against zeros come on yeah. guys <laughs> this is not a this is not a competitive the, you the know, most hairy matchup. one i've heard so far was seven canes <laughs> 500 points uh which did kind of average actually over dominate or anything like that so um the, the other one that's done the rounds of course is the 65 i think yeah yeah that's the one i've always heard <laughs> but you know the, the comment that i've made is that there if if air combat is so much about the person in the box not in not the actual box itself uh, i almost when we do something at adepticon next year want to have pre-painted forces there and mm -hmm. it's a luck of the draw you draw a table number and you roll up and there are your you know six <laughs> fighters that are points balanced against someone else's six fighters so it isn't a it isn't a, a, a choose your your army that you're bringing it is we've given you a, a fairly balanced table we want to see what you do with it and obviously with the nice thing is with a short game like blood red skies you can play quite a few games in a in a reasonable time period and, and you can get a lot of people to play a lot of different armies uh which you know is, is one of the things i love uh chris and, and brett and i have played a lot of zone mortalis when we go up and we play uh, horus heresy and so it's a it's a quick game. You get to knock out three or six different opponents and and get a flavor of of doing something other than getting you know just hammered by the same opponent for two and a half three hours of your life. Well, yeah, the yeah. Car the card mechanic helps you do that too, just because it's you can walk up on a table and have a couple cards in front of you, you know, one or two aircraft cards max, and just a couple special rules, and you can jump into that without you know it's not like. I play Mechanicum, so it's for me. I'm studying 40 different weapon systems for 30k, um, and they they add one every other week. It seems like every time a new model comes out. So it it's I do enjoy the fact that it it is simpler like that, and I think it will help us when we do things like Adepticon to allow people to come to a balanced table and just play without having to to, to worry about showing up with a, a you know a math hammered list or like like you see in the other game systems. Yeah, honestly, guys, at this point, as I say, it, it, in my perspective, it, it's early in the game's career, and so I'm trying to keep it nice and clean at this Absolutely. point. Absolutely. <laughs> Please <Sweet> do. Clean, <laughs> simple. And that's why I say things like, you know, 
a simple, fairly compressed stat line and so on, or things that will help it give it longevity. And honestly, power creep is always something that occurs. Look, we're we're flying MIGs already, basically. But <laughs> as, as long as yeah, you try and yeah. originally keep everybody fighting within the same paradigm, uh, it shouldn't get too bad too quickly. And competitive play is, is something that I, I guarantee it'll become more of a thing um, once we do the midway box and it starts to pick up in America more. Right. Because right. It's, it's understandable that it's doing well in the UK because we did, hey, Battle of Britain, you know, and that that's, you know, we, we were brought up on that one at our, you know, his knee and all that sort of stuff. The Battle of Britain where we saw off the evil Nazis in the air. <laughs> it, it's absolutely part of our, you know, national zeitgeist in a way that I, I fully understand it isn't for other people. Um, but to my mind, to a large extent, Midway forms the same sort of thing for America. Absolutely. It, it's that it, moment it's... of great national peril where everything hangs off, you know, a handful of airmen, basically, doing and dying up in the skies. Um, so I, I think it's got, you know, easily as much appeal when it comes to the US. So I look forward to that. And that will mean that the, a more competitive angle is taken because you Americans are very competitive when it comes to gaming. Oh, uh, oh my God! I uh, <laughs> so so Chris and I always always roll our eyes uh, because you know my, my frame of reference is I you know I put down 40k for more years than some people have played it, and part of that is just the competitive scene. I yep. I just don't dig it. I'm a narrative player, and maybe that's why I like Blood Red Skies because we sit around we talk about you know what battle mat do we want to use, where do we you know where do we want to fight the game? And then we kind of pick some historical forces or semi-historical forces. Uh, but my God, the American gaming community can ruin any perfectly good game by being competitive. Yep. And, <laughs> and I've seen it happen with X-Wing. So probably Blood Red Sky's nearest uh, counterpart in the competitive world uh, mm -hmm. is, is how you create such a, a spaceship and mission and ace creep where if you don't show up with the latest ones released that are the latest you know, powerful aircraft or spacecraft, uh, you're you're not going to play the competitive scene, and that's that's not fun. That's not a group I want to be a part of. <laughs> no, it's, it's, honestly, it's not a game I want to design. I don't want to need this week's fighter to be competitive. Well, and, and that's something that you know I, I realize we're podcasters on the outside, you know, providing our perspective. But I, I hope that's something that that you and the whole Warlord team looks at and and says, well, the the release of playable information is probably better than the release of the latest hot aircraft. And uh, yes, you know. yes. Um, it's probably a good point actually for me to talk about the, the latter half of the story, which was like, all right, so I developed this game, right? And it was super, super popular in my eyes. You know, I, I've taken games to shows before now, so I, I get to see the public's reaction to them. And in my opinion, it's like, wow, this is a winner. Um, so I wrote up in more detail and thought, right. Now, how am I going to get this published? Hmm. And I looked at doing Kickstarter for a few years, but everything I saw about Kickstarter sort of frightened me. And eventually, I moved back to the UK and ended up doing some work for Warlord. And of course, I know lots of the people at Warlord, people I used to work with, Games Workshop. They're the rest uh, of the people that I hate for ruining my life. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, that's where they all went, basically. You know, I, I went and looked a few years and did crazy stuff, and they went worked at warlord basically so it was very familiar faces there and i presented them the game i presented it to paul sawyer and john starlight over there and they really liked it and then they said but 
we're doing Gates of Antares right now, so we won't be able to do anything for, for at least two years on. But I really came to the, I really felt like we're the right partner for it because they are, you know, they're motivated by historical games and toy soldiers and gaming, not by trying to turn it into a magic money tree through, right. you know, having the fighter of the week and all that sort of stuff and that very hard edge sort of salesy stuff done plenty of that in the past i didn't really want any part of that because at the end of the day i'm a hobbyist you're a hobbyist i'm obviously we're all hobbyists and so are the people at warlord and that's kind of how they run their business so i felt like they would make a really good part for it so i just kind of went and waited <laughs> until they had a <laughs> right, said all right then uh you know battered off a few other offers from different places and i'm really glad i did because they they, they have you know they've got heart that you want behind a game like this because it is a historical game. It's not intended to be a competitive game. It can be played competitive and it is balanced in that regard, but it's not designed to be that. It's designed, sort of like, as I talked about at the start, evoking that feeling and trying to teach you something about air war if you didn't know, didn't know anything about it at all. And if you do know something about it, to make you go like, oh, that, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty true, actually. That's exactly. about right. Well, you know, the, the funny thing for me is I've never... I've I'd never played any other games from Warlord. I had uh, pretty securely planted myself in the games workshop world and played a few other board games and things and a lot well a lot of board games early on in my time. Uh, but it, it's kind of funny once you find a game company that you go, oh, their stuff is easily accessible. It's easy entry level. Uh, you know, even with bolt action, sure, there's things I need to acquire, but it's all based on the size of game I want to play. I don't need to do like I did when I rolled back into 40k and spend some ungodly amount of money updating from my rogue trader era plastic space marines uh, to to suddenly what was the newest and, and hottest and greatest. So yeah, and that, it, have you noticed? Just it seems to me that you know we we've been seeing the electronic age ch- you know take over, and we're seeing the gaming crowd become older and older. And for me, it feels like, and what I've kind of seen, and I just want to see if you're seeing the same thing as a game designer, is a lot of us older guys are kind of migrating away from some of the science fiction stuff. And it seems like we're all, I mean, I didn't think I was going to migrate into a World War II game. And now I'm looking at Bolt Action and I'm looking at some other systems and saying, yeah, this is really neat stuff. And I ended up getting hooked on dust and because of the card mechanic in it too, and it being so easy to play. Um, are you seeing that too as a game designer, that there's kind of a migration? If I'm honest, it's always been there. Okay. It's always been there in, in, in all of my career that Basically, as gamers get older, they tend to get more more interested in historical subjects. Um, and to a certain extent, we, we've kind of fed into the Games Workshop over the years because so much of it is based on historical subjects. Yeah. You know, kind of like, you know, made it grim dark, put skulls on it and things <laughs> like that. And people start to eventually get interested in what the source material is all about. And, you know, what is that a reference to? Because a lot of things are very direct references yeah. to try and encourage people to look out into the world and look at history. So I, I think it's always kind of there, and it, it's fairly natural that you you move from something that's like, oh, you know, it's exciting, made up stuff, onto the reality that that made up stuff is based on. Uh, it, it's almost an inevitable journey in my mind that you go from one to the other over time, because I've done it, and I've known countless people who've done it, and that doesn't mean that you stop playing fantasy and sci-fi either. It just means that you interests have diverged out into wanting to know more about this wide, like wider world and where that stuff's being drawn from. Yeah. So, uh, 
no, no, you will all be mine eventually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh no, because because your dear friend Mr. Priestley already is warming his way in game system that I'm not going to talk about here and start <laughs> start going down the road of buying more miniatures. But uh, the the funny thing to me though is Blood Red Skies at least has a feel of enjoyment to it that I didn't get when I had a similar thought of going to play Team Yankee. And as soon as I walked up to the board and everybody's tanks were stacked right next to each other, practically on top of each other, I looked and said, this doesn't look anything like a game I want to play for armored combat. You know, it's it, it didn't have the feel that we immediately got playing Blood Red Skies for aerial combat. We're like, wow, this feels like you're watching the Battle of Britain take place. <laughs> so, Pretty cinematic. Know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and games should be, to my mind, not ridiculous, but they should be cinematic. They should be dramatic, you know. And the, the, for our sins over the years at Games Workshop and subsequently, we've kind of shown how easy it can be to make up a set of rules uh, to make a tabletop war game. It's not hard. No, you just you know? change your edition every three years. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Did yeah, I absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not hard at all. And this, this has kind of gone out to out there where you can see a lot of equivalents to 40k and an epic and so on and so forth and that's a great thing in itself but there's this kind of more to making a game than just statting things up yes uh, <laughs> you know there's a whole kind of like artisanal feel quality about it or to do with i don't know rubbing the oats or something like that well, I, I think that's definitely one of the things that that was one of the reasons why I fell off the 40K train pretty early and fell into heresy when it first first came out. I mean, it, it hooked me. It was it was like playing future history. So um, and it was that artisanal feel that really pulled me over. And I think that's one of the things that's pulling me into some of these other games now also. Yeah, well, the interesting thing that we've seen the dynamic of the players that we bring into blood red skies is for the three of us being 40 K and 30 K players that got pulled over. It's, it's kind of a mix because we found some people that are absolutely not war gamers at all that picked it up, that really enjoyed it. And so it, it kind of has been that uh, nice introductory to hanging out with nerds like us, <laughs> you know, to, to get, to get people to play those games. Um, and I think it also provides a little bit of a bridge because I have a lot of friends that, uh, that play, I'll say, traditional board games out there, settlers, things like that, that are, you know, family board games. And this is an easy way for them to kind of dip their toes into miniatures gaming without feel like they're going out and, and buying a huge rule set to hang out in somebody's basement uh, and, and, <laughs> and play around, no, around a full six table. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Once, once we've suckered you in with this game, we'll have all the other yeah, you play. See, see how low commitment is. It's, exactly it's just six planes come on it's easy it's, it's 24 dollars on uh on miniature market so. hey andy this is brett this is a little bit of a tangent but i'm wondering you know i understand you're a luftwaffe fan for vrs blood reds guys Are, is there a particular airframe uh, aircraft in the game that is maybe your most favorite and in all your research for things with the game have you is there a particular era or air battle that has you most uh, interested um for first question first my my favorite plane for my sins is the fuck wolf 190 a they are just such pugnacious little creatures they really are uh if i'm going to confess something they're probably a little bit overstated in blood red sky <laughs> ah now we see why now <laughs> they have got a bit of daddy's favorite going on, on them. <laughs> um, don't worry that won't help you brett <laughs> but you know in my defense they were an outstandingly good little plane so um 
yeah, that, that's my favorite one. I like 109s as well. I, I flew them a lot when I was in the virtual Luftwaffe. Uh, I, f- I flew Fot Wolf on 90s a bit as well, but to be honest, I wasn't as good in that. <laughs> but that was too much, too good. much power and too much skill. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I deeply remember because they were quite hard to get hold of as well. Because obviously, I grabbed the Fot Wolf 190s when they were available, and I managed to get hold of one like at a rear airfield and fly it forward. And that meant, yeah, 10, 15 minutes worth of flying before you got like got to the the contested battlefield area. Uh, at which point, I saw a plane go underneath me, like flipped into a barrel rock, dived on it. Blacked out, crashed. In the <laughs> oh, well, there, you, there you learned your lesson. Fly something yes. standard. <laughs> don't don't fly something that rolls so well without thinking about it. Exactly. Um. So, what was the second half of that question? I'm sorry. I was just curious if diverted if it, by one. Yeah, I was wondering if in all your research there was a a particular aerial battle in part of World War II that most inspired you, or that um, you were interested. The thing that the thing that I think that fired me up the most was reading a book. Actually, it was Pierre Klosterman's book, "The Big Show." It's called. Um, he was a French pilot who flew for the RAF uh, and the Americans at various stages, and the French, of course. Um, but he he just writes beautifully, and his descriptions of some of the aerial engagements he he fought in are just astonishing they they really are they're intensely cinematic in their own right and i think out of all of those there's there's a mission there you have to escort to try and bomb a freighter specifically uh called the munsterland which is coming in it's got a lot of chromium on board uh you know enough to to make hardened steel road wheels for 17 panzer divisions or whatever so it's vitally important that it, they don't get to deliver it to germany and they try and sink it when it's out at sea and they fail and it manages to sneak into so the way they attack it in port having tried leveling it and things like that is they send in a squadron of typhoons 24 typhoons i think it is with a thousand pound bomb under each wing and then a lot of spitfires coming in over the top to try and protect them uh, the way he describes the entire event is just like horrendous, and that one always stuck with me. It's just like the absolute mayhem that you get off with, like lots of aircraft all charging around trying to do the same thing, lots of flak all charging around trying to do the same thing, thousand pound bombs going off place, and it's like I, I just cannot begin to imagine overall. So that one's always stuck with me. But there have been a bunch of them that's like that. That's just the one that really comes to mind whenever I get asked. Well, that's the thing that's always so need about going between eras and you know i thought i knew a lot about the battle of britain until i picked up blood red skies and started doing research and and all the things that i really hadn't paid attention to because well i was an american so that uh, that part wasn't in my history book that much uh and then went went into mig alley and so there's there's a lot that i thought i knew about the korean uh war and the, the air war specifically that as you dig in and especially now you know 20 years later from when i was doing some of my studies and there's so much more that's uh come from the russian sources the chinese sources and a few of the north korean sources that you you really get a flavor of a lot of the history you didn't know about yeah i i I, like yourself i didn't know an awful lot about the korean air war in particular until i actually started to look at it and you know get told about it by people who are enthusiasts about it so uh, there's a lot going on there and it's interesting how much of an extension it really is of the second world you know just picked up again five years later it really is and it's new planes some of the same planes actually as well (laughs) exactly 
Yeah, I was well, I was reading the Russian Aces book last night, and I was they were you know one of the the recurring themes of the Russian Aces book is they would they would talk about the World War II history, and then go oh, and then they went and flew in North Korea, so as a red devil. So so it was it was interesting, fascinating to see how many of those guys you know were in both both wars. Well, I think that's also one of the the parts that's somewhat difficult for some of the uh, the players to to make that transition and to realize that. Just like some of those, you know, heroes of the Soviet Union showed up and thought they understood air combat the first time they tangled with a saber and then especially an advanced saber. There were a couple of times that the Russian pilots came back and said, no, 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 we're just going to fly defense over the Chinese bases. (laughs) We really don't need to press any further south because there was a a sudden realization that, okay, what had been an easy matchup early on shooting down F-80s, shooting F-51s, shooting down... uh, for you Corsairs, uh, that was changing. And so there's there's an interesting series of stories in in both the Red Devils of the Yalu and then a couple of the other books where uh, some of the Russian pilots said, wait a minute, we actually have to go back and be serious about this. This isn't just going to be beating up on on propeller airplanes. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that, that's one of the things, that, again, I find fascinating about air war. It is such a technological war. Uh, and advances so quickly, you know, actually while the battles are being fought. Because with things like tanks and so on, you know, they go away, they redesign the tank, they come out with a different in limited numbers, and it makes a little bit of an impact. But with air, you know, it can be as little as like some different adjustments to the engine, and, and suddenly it makes a big difference, or slight changes to the airframe, suddenly it makes a big difference, and so on and so forth. Something as small as if Hitler had not decided to force the 262 to have a bombing role um, and had cut that plane loose a year and a half earlier in the numbers that they could have cut it loose. If they had not hiccuped that production, it would have been it would have completely changed a lot of what was going on in the air war. And there's little things like that with the technology leaps that were taking place. It is amazing how fast it transitions. Yeah, and that's one of the pleasures, actually, in Blood Red Skies of, of taking things like 109. Uh, Mission like 109 and the Spitfire, and looking at them as they evolve through war, and going like, oh, all right, how does that translate into a compressed stat line? And it does, it does, it, it works quite well. Uh, increase in firepower reduction and agility, increase in speed. Uh, you see it time and again. Well, and I think the ability to have the aircraft equipment cards has also helped. I know John Russell and I talked about the the ability to you know play the Malcolm Hood card uh, for a lot of those earlier aircraft as you got that incremental upgrade when the hey, wait a minute, we've got a better way to make visibility for the pilot. And you know, I'm sure there'll be things that people think of for even the jet age, that just the incremental advances that, that made a difference, whether it was the radar-computed gun sight or things like that, that uh, suddenly made the F-86 a, a more effective airplane if the pilot understood how to use the system. That it worked on the day. Yes. Um, that, that's one of the interesting things about Blood Red Sky as well in terms of development is I didn't have cards in the game right up until the point where Woolard said, all right, we're going to publish it. Uh, and they said, but we want to have cards in the game. Perhaps, perhaps, <laughs> it may be said, influenced slightly by X-Wing. Uh, and the fact of like, oh, cards is good. Apparently people buy sets just to get the cards out of them and things like that. What was your initial um, reaction as a game designer to run screaming from from cards, or did you say, "Oh, okay, I, I can see how that fits Blood Red Sky"? Yeah, it was the latter actually, because I'd had a problem for a long time uh, about how to do things like weather, or or with some flak in the area, or oh, hey, the thatch weave. You know, it's right. not a trait on an aircraft; it's not an individual thing; it's a tactic. 
and loads of stuff like that where I, I didn't really have a way of expressing the, the game. And I realized that if I was smart about it, then I could use the card system to express those things as well as the, the trait system that was already there for aircraft in the game. Things like tight turn was, you know, it was just a special rule for Spitfires at the time. Um, so taking that off and just putting it on a card and saying, you know, play the card to tight turn, that was no trouble at all. And it actually opened up these delicious extra opportunities uh, to incorporate stuff about the air war I hadn't been able to touch on before. So it was actually a positive, as it turned out. It was a little bit of screaming at the time. <laughs> well, I like to think you know, the professional games designer can find a way to learn to love something about every brief, you know? Well, as I've said on the podcast before, I mean, it was easy for Chris as a guy who played a lot of Magic the Gathering. Yeah, you know, he, he was he was very easy for him to adopt cards. I came kicking and screaming to the you're, concept you're of a card. You're going to keep beating that drum, even I, after I, I got you the other night. <laughs> because because once again, all, all I got to say is it doesn't matter if it's true or not. You say it enough, it will be thought of as true. So first rule of Stalin, you know, keep repeating the same propaganda. I, I did get you good the other night when you said that you, when you told Brett, when Brett asked if um, your wife was a uh, a gamer at all, and you said, no, she likes playing card games. I said, so you married a magic gamer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you said that to her, she will punch you in the face. Remember she's a retired Marine as well. So she has, I think the only game she plays is cards against humanity. That is the only game at all that she's willing to even play because of the pure evil and sarcasm that comes out of that game. <laughs> But that's all right. Uh, it will be a a, uh, a one gamer household. That's fine. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, uh, Andy. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know we've covered a lot of different issues. We've kind of bounced around between your previous history, your current things you're working on, uh, and we've definitely run for uh, for at least our planned length of time. Is there anything you kind of want to throw out to us uh, in closing? Any any teasers? Any spoilers? I know you've said a couple things that I'm not going to clue in on i'm going to let people pick them up in the uh in the podcast to see if they uh they choose to <laughs> clue in on them but is there anything you want to kind of throw us uh, for the future of blood red sky uh future the future of blood red skies well I, I touched on a few things that we're working on like in terms of major releases at the moment um airstrike are considered to be a major release because it will be that rules compendium I, i'm trying to get to a point where you don't need to buy a starter set so you could just like right. buy the rules and buy what cards you need because um, we've also been doing expansion sets of just cards uh, without models in them for people who've got existing uh, collections perhaps or want to get ones from different places whatever i'm mostly just interested in getting as many people to play blood red skies as possible and i will do things to try and make that happen including things like doing the galley as well which was <laughs> a complete curveball because warlord were doing it for, for bolt action and they were like wouldn't it be nice too it's like, all right, we can make that work if you want that to work as well. Because basically, if you want playing games, I will supply them to you, is my plan. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I, I, I think I've got a rocking good system, is what it comes down to. And I, I, I will keep pumping out stuff to do with that. So, airstrike first, we'll do some ground attack and bombing things. And then, midway next year, we'll get into even more bombing of carriers and so forth. Excellent. Uh, although you can do that in airstrike, it must be said. But I'm hoping to refine the rules down and almost get like a little mini game thing going on. Oh, nice! Uh, Excellent to help support that. So that that's where we're looking to the future: uh, more diversity in planes, more diversity in air forces. We're looking at the, the Italians, for example, towards the end of the year. Just cards, no planes yet, but they'll come in due course. And uh, a lot more American stuff and Pacific War stuff next year. 
Excellent. That that should be really exciting. I know uh, we're on this three month cycle that we feel like uh, for releases and revisions and planning that about uh, every three months on our schedule is something new and it's good for us because it keeps the hobby fresh. But <laughs> I know there's a point I looked back and said, wow, my entire podcast and hobby life is planned until the end of Adepticon next year. <laughs> like, how did that happen? <laughs> so I know we're excited to definitely see a lot of the Pacific releases and see where that goes because we've We've intentionally painted some models and kind of pushed it to the side because we've been uh, trying to get ready for MIG Alley. Thanks for the time once again. I really appreciate it. Uh, and I want to encourage all of our listeners out there. If you have questions, you know that we're always going to pin Andy down again at some other time. Please shoot us those questions on Facebook. You can email us off the website. If you go out to Instagram and you look at my horribly painted models next to Chris's beautifully painted models, uh, leave us a comment there uh, and uh, say, your sabers look terrible, Doug. You should melt them all down and start over, uh, which <laughs> <laughs> which I might do when my pewter uh, ones show up here uh, shortly. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, leave us some feedback. Uh, we plan on talking to Andy quite a few more times in the, uh, in the coming year and keeping track of where Blood Red Skies is going and where the, the next releases are going to take us. Thanks for inviting me, guys. It's been a real pleasure talking to you all. It's always nice to chat about Blood Red Skies. <laughs> <laughs>